0: Jesus the Christ by James E. Talmage, Read by Bradley Ross The text of this book is available from Project Gutenberg at gutenberg.org Chapter 35 Death and Burial On the way to Calvary. Pontius Pilate, having reluctantly surrendered to the clamorous demands of the Jews, issued the fatal order, and Jesus, divested of the purple robe and arrayed in his own apparel, was led away to be crucified. A body of Roman soldiers had the condemned Christ in charge, and as the procession moved out from the governor's palace, a motley crowd, comprising priestly officials, rulers of the Jews, And people of many nationalities followed. Two convicted criminals, who had been sentenced to the cross for robbery, were led forth to death at the same time. There was to be a triple execution, and the prospective scene of horror attracted the morbidly-minded, such as delight to gloat over the sufferings of their fellows. In the crowd, however, were some genuine mourners, as shall be shown, It was the Roman custom to make the execution of convicts as public as possible under the mistaken and anti-psychological assumption that the spectacle of dreadful punishment would be of deterrent effect. This misconception of human nature has not yet become entirely obsolete. The sentence of death by crucifixion required that the condemned person carry the cross upon which he was to suffer. Jesus started on the way bearing his cross, the terrible strain of the preceding hours, the agony in Gethsemane, the barbarous treatment he had suffered in the palace of the high priest, the humiliation and cruel usage to which he had been subjected before Herod, the frightful scourging under Pilate's order, the brutal treatment by the inhuman soldiery, together with the extreme humiliation and the mental agony of it all, had so weakened his physical organism that he moved but slowly under the burden of the cross. The soldiers, impatient at the delay, peremptorily impressed into service a man whom they met coming into Jerusalem from the country, and him they compelled to carry the cross of Jesus. No Roman or Jew would have voluntarily incurred the ignominy of bearing such a gruesome burden, for every detail connected with the carrying out of a sentence of crucifixion was regarded as degrading. The man so forced to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, bearing the cross upon which the Savior of the world was to consummate his glorious mission, was Simon, a native of Cyrene. From Mark's statement that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, we infer that the two sons were known to the evangelists' readers as members of the early church, and there is some indication that the household of Simon the Cyrenian came to be numbered with the believers. Among those who followed or stood and watched the death procession pass were some, women particularly, who bewailed and lamented the fate to which Jesus was going. We read of no man who ventured to raise his voice in protest or pity, but on this dreadful occasion, as at other times, women were not afraid to cry out in commiseration or praise. Jesus, who had been silent under the inquisition of the priests, "'silent under the humiliating mockery of the sensual Herod "'and his coarse underlings, "'silent when buffeted and beaten by the brutal legionaries of Pilate, "'turned to the women whose sympathizing lamentations had reached his ears "'and uttered these pathetic and portentous words of admonition and warning, "'Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, "'but weep for yourselves and for your children.' For behold, the days are coming, in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? It was the Lord's last testimony of the impending holocaust of destruction that was to follow the nation's rejection of her king. Although motherhood was the glory of every Jewish woman's life, yet in the terrible scenes which many of those there weeping would live to witness, barrenness would be accounted a blessing, for the childness would have fewer to weep over, and at least would be spared the horror of seeing their offspring die of starvation or by violence. For so dreadful would be that day that people would fain welcome the falling of the mountains upon them to end their sufferings. If Israel's oppressors could do what was then in process of doing to the green tree who bore the leafage of freedom and truth and offered the priceless fruit of life eternal, what would the powers of evil not do to the withered branches and dried trunk of apostate Judaism? Along the city streets, out through the portal of the massive wall and thence to a place beyond, but yet nigh unto Jerusalem, the cortege advanced. The destination was a spot called Golgotha, or Calvary, meaning the place of a skull. Crucifixion At Calvary, the official crucifiers proceeded without delay to carry into effect the dread sentence pronounced upon Jesus and upon the two criminals. Preparatory to affixing the condemned to the cross, It was the custom to offer each a narcotic draught of sour wine or vinegar, mingled with myrrh and possibly containing other anodyne ingredients, for the merciful purpose of deadening the sensibility of the victim. This was no Roman practice, but was allowed as a concession to Jewish sentiment. When the drugged cup was presented to Jesus, he put it to his lips, but having ascertained the nature of its contents, refused to drink, and so demonstrated his determination to meet death with faculties alert and mind unclouded. Then they crucified him on the central cross of three, and placed one of the condemned malefactors on his right hand, the other on his left. Thus was realized Isaiah's vision of the Messiah numbered among the transgressors. But few details of the actual crucifixion are given us, We know, however, that our Lord was nailed to the cross by spikes driven through the hands and feet, as was the Roman method, and not bound only by cords, as was the custom in inflicting this form of punishment among some other nations. Death by crucifixion was at once the most lingering and most painful of all forms of execution. The victim lived in ever-increasing torture, generally for many hours, sometimes for days. The spikes, so cruelly driven through hands and feet, penetrated and crushed sensitive nerves and quivering tendons, yet inflicted no mortal wound. The welcome relief of death came through the exhaustion caused by intense and unremitting pain, through localized inflammation and congestion of organs incident to the strained and unnatural posture of the body. As the crucifiers proceeded with their awful task, not unlikely with roughness and taunts, for killing was their trade, and to scenes of anguish they had grown callous through long familiarity. The agonized sufferer, void of resentment, but full of pity for their heartlessness and capacity for cruelty, voiced the first of the seven utterances delivered from the cross. In the spirit of godlike mercy he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let us not attempt to fix the limits of the Lord's mercy. That it would be extended to all who in any degree could justly come under the blessed boon thereof ought to be a sufficing fact. There is significance in the form in which this merciful benediction was expressed. Had the Lord said, I forgive you, his gracious pardon may have been understood to be but a remission of the cruel offense against himself as one tortured under unrighteous condemnation. But the invocation of the Father's forgiveness was a plea for those who had brought anguish and death to the Father's well-beloved Son, the Savior and Redeemer of the world. Moses forgave Miriam for her offense against himself as her brother, but God alone could remit the penalty and remove the leprosy that had come upon her for having spoken against Jehovah's High Priest. It appears that under Roman rule, the clothes, worn by a condemned person at the time of execution, became the perquisites of the executioners. The four soldiers in charge of the cross, upon which the Lord suffered, distributed parts of his raiment among themselves. And there remained his coat, which was a goodly garment, woven throughout in one piece without seam. To rend it would be to spoil, so the soldiers cast lots to determine who should have it. And in this circumstance, the gospel writers saw a fulfillment of the psalmist's provision. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. To the cross above the head of Jesus was affixed a title or inscription, prepared by order of Pilate in accordance with the custom of setting forth the name of the crucified and the nature of the offense for which he had been condemned to death. In this instance, the title was inscribed in three languages, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, one or more of which would be understood by every observer who could read. The title so exhibited read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Or in the more extended version, given by John, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The inscription was read by many, For Calvary was close to the public thoroughfare, and on this holiday occasion, the passers by were doubtless numerous. Comment was aroused, for if literally construed, the inscription was an official declaration that the crucified Jesus was, in fact, King of the Jews. When this circumstance was brought to the attention of the chief priests, they excitedly appealed to the governor, saying, Write not the King of the Jews but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate's action in so wording the title and his blunt refusal to permit any alteration may have been an intended rebuff to the Jewish officials who had forced him against his judgment and will to condemn Jesus. Possibly, however, the demeanor of the submissive prisoner and his avowal of kingship, above all royalty on earth, had impressed the mind, if not the heart, of the pagan governor with a conviction of Christ's unique superiority and of his inherent right of dominion. But whatever the purpose behind the writing, the inscription stands in history as testimony of a heathen's consideration in contrast with Israel's ruthless rejection of Israel's king. The soldiers whose duty it was to guard the crosses until loitering death would relieve the crucified of their increasing anguish, jested among themselves, and derided the Christ, pledging him in their cups of sour wine and tragic mockery. Looking at the title affixed above the sufferer's head, they bellowed forth the devil-inspired challenge, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. The morbid multitude and the passers-by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. But worst of all, the chief priests and the scribes, the elders of the people, the unvenerable Sanhedrists, became ringleaders of the inhuman mob, as they gloatingly exulted and cried aloud, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Though uttered in ribald mockery, the declaration of the rulers of Israel stands as an attestation that Christ had saved others, and as an intended ironical but a literally true proclamation that he was the king of Israel. The two malefactors, each hanging from his cross, joined in the general derision and cast the same in his teeth. One of them, in the desperation incident to approaching death, echoed the taunts of the priests and people. If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. The dominant note in all the railings and revilings, the ribaldry and mockery with which the patient and submissive Christ was assailed while he hung, Lifted up, as he had said he would be, was that awful if hurled at him by the devil's emissaries in the time of mortal agony, as in the season of the temptations immediately after his baptism, it had been the most insidiously pressed upon him by the devil himself. That if was Satan's last shaft, keenly barbed and doubly envenomed, and it sped as with the fierce hiss of a viper. Was it possible in this the final and most dreadful stage of Christ's mission to make him doubt his divine sonship or failing such to taunt or anger the dying savior into the use of his superhuman powers for personal relief or as an act of vengeance upon his tormentors? To achieve such a victory was Satan's desperate purpose. The shaft failed. Through taunts and derision, through blasphemous challenge and diabolical goading, the agonized Christ was silent. Then one of the crucified thieves, softened into penitence by the Savior's uncomplaining fortitude, and perceiving in the divine sufferer's demeanor something more than human, rebuked his railing fellow, saying, "'Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation?' And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. His confession of guilt and his acknowledgment of the justice of his own condemnation led to incipient repentance and to faith in the Lord Jesus, his companion in agony. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. To the appeal of penitence, the Lord replied, with such a promise as he alone could make. Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Among the spectators of this, the greatest tragedy in history were some who had come in sympathy and sorrow. No mention is found of the presence of any of the twelve, save one. And he, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John the Apostle, Evangelist and Revelator, But specific record is made of certain women who, first at a distance and then close by the cross, wept in the anguish of love and sorrow. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. In addition to the women named were many others, some of whom had ministered unto Jesus in the course of his labors in Galilee and who were among those who had come up with him to Jerusalem. First, in point of consideration among them all, was Mary, the mother of Jesus, into whose soul the sword had pierced even as righteous Simeon had prophesied. Jesus, looking with tender compassion upon his weeping mother, as she stood with John at the foot of the cross, commended her to the care and protection of the beloved disciple with the words, Woman, behold thy son, and to John, behold thy mother. The disciple tenderly led the heart-stricken Mary away from her dying son and took her unto his own home, thus immediately assuming the new relationship established by his dying master. Jesus was nailed to the cross during the forenoon of that fateful Friday, probably between nine and ten o'clock. At noontide, the light of the sun was obscured, and black darkness spread over the whole land. The terrifying gloom continued for a period of three hours. This remarkable phenomenon has received no satisfactory explanation from science. It could not have been due to a solar eclipse, as had been suggested in ignorance, for the time was that of full moon. Indeed, the Passover season was determined by the first occurrence of full moon after the spring equinox. The darkness was brought about by miraculous operation of natural laws directed by divine power. It was a fitting sign of the earth's deep mourning over the impending death of her creator. Of the mortal agony through which the Lord passed while upon the cross, the gospel scribes are reverently reticent. At the ninth hour, or about three in the afternoon, A loud voice, surpassing the most anguished cry of physical suffering, issued from the central cross. Rending the dreadful darkness, it was the voice of the Christ. Eloi! Eloi! Lama Sabachthani! Which is being interpreted, My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? What mind of man can fathom the significance of that awful cry? It seems that in addition to the fearful suffering incident to crucifixion, the agony of Gethsemane had recurred, intensified beyond human power to endure. In that bitterest hour, the dying Christ was alone, alone in most terrible reality. That the supreme sacrifice of the Son might be consummated in all its fullness, the Father seems to have withdrawn the support of his immediate presence, leaving to the Savior of men the glory of complete victory over the forces of sin and death. The cry from the cross, though heard by all who were near, was understood by few. The first exclamation, Eloi, meaning my God, was misunderstood as a call for Elias. The period of faintness, the conception of utter forsakenness soon passed, and the natural cravings of the body reasserted themselves. The maddening thirst, which constituted one of the worst of the crucifixion agonies, wrung from the Savior's lips, his one recorded utterance expressive of physical suffering. I thirst, he said. One of those who stood by, whether Roman or Jew, disciple or skeptic, we are not told, hastily saturated a sponge with vinegar, a vessel of which was at hand, And having fastened the sponge to the end of a reed or stalk of hyssop, pressed it to the Lord's fevered lips. Some others would have prevented this one act of human response, for they said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. John affirms that Christ uttered the exclamation, I thirst, only when he knew that all things were now accomplished. And the apostle saw in the incident a fulfillment of prophecy. Fully realizing that he was no longer forsaken, but that his atoning sacrifice had been accepted by the Father, and that his mission in the flesh had been carried to glorious consummation, he exclaimed in a loud voice of holy triumph, It is finished. In reverence, resignation, and relief, he addressed the Father, saying, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He bowed his head, and voluntarily gave up his life. Jesus the Christ was dead. His life had not been taken from him, except as he had willed to permit. Sweet and welcome as would have been the relief of death in any of the earlier stages of his suffering from Gethsemane to the cross, he lived until all things were accomplished as had been appointed. In the latter days, the voice of the Lord Jesus has been heard affirming the actuality of his suffering and death, and the eternal purpose thereby accomplished. Hear and heed his words. For behold, the Lord your Redeemer suffered death in the flesh, wherefore he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. Important Occurrences Between the Lord's Death and Burial. The death of Christ was accompanied by terrifying phenomena. There was a violent earthquake. The rocks of the mighty hills were disrupted, and many graves were torn open. But most portentous of all in Judaistic minds, the veil of the temple, which hung between the holy place and the holy of holies, was rent from top to bottom, and the interior, which none but the high priest had been permitted to see, was thrown open to common gaze, It was the rending of Judaism, the consummation of the Mosaic Dispensation, and the inauguration of Christianity under apostolic administration. The Roman centurion and the soldiers under his command at the place of execution were amazed and greatly affrighted. They had probably witnessed many deaths on the cross, but never before had they seen a man apparently die of his own volition and able to cry in a loud voice at the moment of dissolution. That barbarous and inhuman mode of execution induced slow and progressive exhaustion. The actual death of Jesus appeared to all who were present to be a miracle, as in fact it was. This marvel, coupled with the earthquake and its attendant horrors, so impressed the centurion that he prayed to God and solemnly declared, Certainly, this was a righteous man. Others joined in fearsome averment, Truly, this was the Son of God. The terrified ones who spoke and those who heard left the place in a state of fear, beating their breasts and bewailing what seemed to be a state of impending destruction. A few loving women, however, watched from a distant point and saw all that took place until the Lord's body was laid away. It was now late in the afternoon. At sunset, the Sabbath would begin. That approaching Sabbath was held to be more than ordinarily sacred, for it was a high day, in that it was the weekly Sabbath and a Paschal holy day. The Jewish officials, who had not hesitated to slay their Lord, were horrified at the thought of men left hanging on crosses on such a day, for thereby the land would be defiled. So these scrupulous rulers went to Pilate, and begged that Jesus and the two malefactors be summarily dispatched, By the brutal Roman method of breaking their legs, the shock of which violent treatment had been found to be promptly fatal to the crucified. The governor gave his consent, and the soldiers broke the limbs of the two thieves with cudgels. Jesus, however, was found to be already dead, so they broke not his bones. Christ, the great Passover sacrifice, of whom all altar victims had been but suggestive prototypes, died through violence, yet without a bone of his body being broken, as was a prescribed condition of the slain pascal lambs. One of the soldiers, to make sure that Jesus was actually dead, or to surely kill him if he was yet alive, drove a spear into his side, making a wound large enough to permit a man's hand to be thrust thereinto. The withdrawal of the spear was followed by an outflow of blood and water, An occurrence so surprising that John, who was an eyewitness, bears specific personal testimony to the fact and cites the scriptures thereby fulfilled. The Burial A man known as Joseph of Arimathea, who was at heart a disciple of Christ, but who had hesitated to openly confess his conversion through fear of the Jews, desired to give the Lord's body a decent and honorable interment. But for some such divinely directed intervention, the body of Jesus might have been cast into the common grave of executed criminals. This man, Joseph, was a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. It is expressly said of him that he had not consented to the counsel and deed of them, from which statement we infer that he was a Sanhedrist and had been opposed to the action of his colleagues in condemning Jesus to death or at least had refrained from voting with the rest. Joseph was a man of wealth, station, and influence. He went in boldly unto Pilate and begged the body of Christ. The governor was surprised to learn that Jesus was already dead. He summoned the centurion and inquired as to how long Jesus had lived on the cross. The unusual circumstance seems to have added to Pilate's troubled concern. He gave command, and the body of Christ was delivered to Joseph the body was removed from the cross, and in preparing it for the tomb, Joseph was assisted by Nicodemus, another member of the Sanhedrin, the same who had come to Jesus by night three years before, and who at one of the conspiracy meetings of the council had protested against the unlawful condemnation of Jesus without a hearing. Nicodemus brought a large quantity of myrrh and aloes, about a weight. The odorous mixture was highly esteemed for anointing and embalming, but its cost restricted its use to the wealthy. These two revering disciples wrapped the Lord's body in clean linen with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury, and then laid it in a new sepulcher hewn in the rock. The tomb was in a garden not far from Calvary and was the property of Joseph because of the nearness of the Sabbath, the interment had to be made with haste. The door of the sepulchre was closed, a large stone was rolled against it, and thus laid away the body was left to rest. Some of the devoted women, particularly Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who was the mother of James and Joseph, had watched the entombment from a distance, and when it was completed they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. The Sepulchre Guarded On the day following the preparation, that is to say on Saturday, the Sabbath and High Day, the chief priests and Pharisees came in a body to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, While he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night, and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. It is evident that the most inveterate of the human enemies of Christ remembered his predictions of an assured resurrection on the third day after his death. Pilate answered with terse assent, Ye have a watch, Go your way, make it as sure as you can. So the chief priests and Pharisees satisfied themselves that the sepulchre was secure by seeing that the official seal was affixed at the junction of the great stone and the portal, and that an armed guard was placed in charge.